0: Thank you, everyone, for uh, for coming out tonight, and thank you for that uh, very kind introduction, and indeed for for hosting this event. It's such a pleasure always to come back to this uh, to this shop. Um, I thought I would read uh, from the book's title essay, if if you didn't mind, um, which is about um, well, it's about the fun of drumming and uh, and growing up in a in a rather straight laced. Um, uh, religious and classically music, classical music, li- music-oriented household. I had a traditional music, musical education in a provincial English cathedral town. I was sent off to an ancient piano teacher with the requisite halitosis, who lashed with a ruler at my knuckles as if they were wasps. I added the trumpet a few years later and had lessons with a younger, cheerier man, who told me that the best way to make the instrument sound was to imagine spitting paper pellets down the mouthpiece at the school bully. I sang daily in the cathedral choir, an excellent grounding in sight reading and performance. I still play the piano and the trumpet. But what I really wanted to do, as a little boy, was play the drums. And of those different ways of making music, only playing the drums still makes me feel like a little boy. A friend's older brother had a drum kit, and as a twelve-year-old I gawped at the spangled shells of wood and skin and plotted... I might get to hit them and make a lot of noise. It wouldn't be easy. My parents had no time for all that thumping about, and the prim world of ecclesiastical and classical music, which meant so much to me, detested rock. But I waited until the drums owner was off at school and sneaked into the attic, where they gleamed fabulously inert, and over the next few years I taught myself how to play them. Sitting behind the drums was also like a fantasy of driving, the other great prepubescent ambition with my feet established on two pedals, bass drum and hi-hat, and the willing dial staring back at me like a blank dashboard. Noise, speed, rebellion. Everyone secretly wants to play the drums because hitting things like yelling returns us to the innocent violence of childhood. Music makes us want to dance, to register rhythm on and with our bodies. So the drummer and the conductor are the luckiest of all musicians because they're closest to dancing. And in drumming, how childishly close the connection is between the dancer and the dance. When you blow down an oboe, say, or pull a bow across a string, an infinitesimal, barely perceptible hesitation, the hesitation of vibration, separates the act and the sound. For trumpeters, the simple voicing of a quiet middle C is more fraught than very complex passages, because that brass tube can be sluggish in its obedience. But when a drummer needs to make a drum sound, he just hits it. The stick or hand comes down and the skin bellows. The narrator of Thomas Bernhardt's novel, The Loser, a pianist crazed with dreams of genius and obsessed with Glenn Gould, expresses the impossible longing to become the piano, to be at one with it. When you play the drums, you are the drums. Le tom-tom c'est moi, as Wallace Stevens put it. The drummer who was the drums when I was a boy was the Who's Keith Moon, though he was already dead by the time I first heard him. He was the drums, not because he was the most technically accomplished of drummers, but because his many-armed, joyous, semaphoring lunacy suggested a man possessed by the antic spirit of drumming. He was pure, irresponsible, restless, childishness at the end of early who concerts, as Pete Tanzan smashed his guitar, Moon would kick his drums and stand on them and hurl them around the stage and This seems a logical extension not only of the basic premise of drumming, which is to hit things but an inevitable extension of of Moon's drumming, which was to hit things exuberantly. In the band's very early days, the managers of clubs would complain to Tanzend about his drummer. We like you guys, they would say, but get rid of that madman on the drums. He's too loud. To which Moon succinctly replied, I can't play quiet. I'm a rock drummer. The Who had extraordinary rhythmic vitality, and it died when Keith Moon died on the 7th of September, 1978. I'd hardly ever heard any rock music when I first listened to albums like Quadrophenia and Who's Next? My notion of musical volume and power was inevitably circumscribed by my fairly sheltered, austerely Christian upbringing. I got off on churchy things, like, I got off on classical or churchy things, like the brassy last bars of William Walton's First Symphony, or the chromatic last movement of the Hammer Clavier Sonata or the way the choir bursts in at the start of Handel's anthem, Zadok the Priest, or the thundering 32-foot bass pipes of Durham Cathedral's organ, and the way the echo at the end of a piece took seven seconds to dissolve in that huge building. Those are not to be despised, but nothing had prepared me for the ferocious energy of the Who. Pete Townshend's hard, tense, suspended chords seemed to scour the air around them. Roger Daltrey's singing, was a young man's fighting swagger, an incitement to some kind of crime. John Entwistle's incessantly mobile bass playing was like someone running away from the scene of the crime. And Keith Moon's drumming, in its inspired vandalism, was the crime itself. Most rock drummers, even very good and inventive ones, are timekeepers. There's a space for a fill or a roll at the end of a musical phrase, but the beat has primacy over the curlicues. In a regular 4-4 bar, the bass drum sounds the first beat, the snare the second, the bass drum again hits the third, often with two eighth notes at this point, and then the snare hits the bar's final beat. This results in the familiar boom-da, boom-boom-da sound of most rock drumming. A standard issue drummer playing along say to the Beatles, carry that weight, would keep his 4-4 beat steady through the line, boy, you're going to carry that weight, carry that weight a long time. Until the natural break, which comes at the end of the phrase, where just after the word time, a long time, boy, a wordless two-beat half-bar readies itself for the repeated chorus. In that half-bar, there might be space for a quick roll, or a roll in a triplet, or something fancy with snare and hi-hat. Really, any variety of filler. The filler is the fun stuff. And it could be said without much exaggeration that nearly all the fun stuff in drumming takes place in those two empty beats between the end of a phrase and the start of another. Ringo Starr, who interpreted his role fairly modestly, does nothing much in that two-beat space. Mostly, he just provides eight, even, straightforward sixteenth notes. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. In a good cover version of the song, Phil Collins, an extremely sophisticated drummer who was never a modest performer with Genesis, does a tight roll that begins with feather-like delicacy on a tom-tom and ends more firmly on his snare before going back to the beat. But whatever their stylistic differences, the modest and the sophisticated drummer share an understanding that there's a proper space for keeping the beat and a much smaller space for departing from it, like a time-out area in a classroom. The difference is just that the sophisticated drummer is much more often in time-out and is always busily showing off to the rest of the class while he's there. Keith Moon ripped all this up. There's no time-out in his drumming because there's no time in. It's all fun stuff. The first principle of Moon's drumming was that drummers do not exist to keep the beat. He did keep the beat, of course, and well, but he did it by every method except the traditional one. Drumming is repetition, as is rock music generally, and Moon clearly found repetition dull. So he played the drums like no one else, and not even like himself. I mean that no two bars of Moon's playing ever sounds the same. He's in revolt against consistency. He's always vandalizing repetition. Everyone else in the band gets to improvise, so why should the drummer be nothing more than a condemned metronome? He saw himself as a soloist, playing with an ensemble of other soloists. It follows from this that the drummer will be playing a line of music, just as, say, the guitarist does, with undulations and crescendos and leaps. It further follows that the snare drum and the bass drum, traditionally the ball and chain of rhythmic imprisonment, are no more interesting than any of the other drums in the kit, and that you will need lots of those other drums. Lots and lots. By the mid-1970s, when Moon's kit was said to be the biggest in the world, and what a deliciously absurd conceit anyway, he had two bass drums and at least 12 tom-toms arrayed in stacks like squadrons of spotlights. He looked like a cheerful boy who had built elaborate fortifications for the sole purpose of destroying them. But he needed all those drums, as a flute needs all its stops or a harp its strings, so that his tremendous bubbling cascades, his liquid journeys, could be voiced. He needed not to run out of drums as he ran around them. Average musical performance like athletic prowess and viticulture, and perhaps novel writing, has probably improved in the last century. Nowadays, more and more pianists can brilliantly run off some Chopin or Rachmaninoff in a concert hall, and the guy at the local drum shop is probably technically more adept than Keith Moon ever was. YouTube, which is a kind of permanent special Olympics for show-offs, is full of young men wreaking double-jointed virtuosity on fabulously complex, complex drum kits rigged up like artillery ranges. But so what? They can also backflip into their jeans from great heights and parkour across Paris. Moon disliked drum solos and didn't perform them. The only one I've seen is pretty bad, a piece of anti-performance art. Moon sloppy and mindless, apparently drunk or stoned or both, and almost collapsing into the drums while he pounds them like pillows. He may have lacked the the control necessary to sustain a long, complex solo. More likely, he needed the kinetic adventures of The Who to provoke him into his own. His cheerful way of conceding this was his celebrated remark that I'm the best Keith Moon-style drummer in the world, which was also a way of saying I'm the best Who-style drummer in the world. Keith Moon-style drumming is a lucky combination of the artful and the artless. To, to the, beginning, the beginning, his drums always sounded good. He hit them nice and hard and tuned the bigger Tom-Toms low, not for him the little eunuch Toms of Kenny Jones, who palely succeeded him in the Who after Moon's death. He kept his snare... Pretty dry. This isn't a small thing. The talentless three-piece jazz combo at your local hotel ballroom, dinner-jacketed old-timers hacking through the old favourites, almost certainly features a so-called drummer, whose sticks are used so lightly that they barely embarrass the skins, and whose snare, wet, buzzy, loose, sounds like a repeated sneeze. A good dry snare, properly struck, is a bark, a crack, a report. How a drummer hits the snare and how it sounds can determine a band's entire dynamic. Groups like Supertramp and the Eagles seem soft in large part because the snare is so drippy and mildly used, and not just because elves are apparently squeezing the singer's testicles. There are three great albums by the Who, and these are also the three greatest moon records. Live at Leeds, 1970, a recording of an explosive concert at Leeds University on the 14th of February, 1970, generally considered one of the greatest live albums in rock. Who's Next, 1971, the most famous Who album. And Quadrophenia, 1973, a kind of successor to Tommy, a rock opera that nostalgically separate, celebrates the 1960s mod culture that had provoked and nourished the band in its earlier days. On these are such songs as Substitute, My Generation, See Me, Feel Me, Listening to You, Won't Get Fooled Again, Barbara O'Reilly, The Song Is Over, The Real Me, and Love, Reign Me." There's no great difference between the live concert recordings and the studio songs. All of them are full of improvisation and structured anarchy fluffs and misses, all of them seem to have the rushed gratitude of something achieved only once. From which emerges the second great principle of Moon's drumming, namely that one is always performing, not recording, and that making mistakes is simply part of the locomotion of vitality. In the wonderful song The Dirty Jobs on Quadrophenia, you can hear Moon accidentally knock his sticks together three separate times while travelling around the kit. Today, most drummers would be horrified to be caught out on tape like this. For Moon, this vitality meant trying to shape oneself to the changing dynamics of the music, listening as much to the percussive deviations of the bass line as to the steady, obvious line of the lead singer. As a result, it's impossible to separate him from the music The Who made. The story goes that in 1968, Jimmy Page wanted John Entwistle on bass and Keith Moon on drums for his new band. And as sensational as this group might have been, it wouldn't have sounded either like Led Zeppelin or The Who. If Led Zeppelin's drummer John Bonham was substituted for Moon on Won't Get Fooled Again, the song would lose half its passionate propulsion, half its wild excess. If Moon sat in for Bonham on Good Times, Bad Times, the tight stability of that piece would instantly evaporate. Bonham's drumming sounds as if he's thought about phrasing. He never overreaches himself because he seems to have so perfectly measured the relationship between rhythmic order and rhythmic deviation. His superb but tightly limited breaks on the snare and his famously rapid double strokes on the bass drum are constantly played against the unvarying solidity of his hi-hat, which keeps a steady single beat throughout the bars. That's the Bonham sound, heard in the celebrated long solo, one of devilish complexity in Moby Dick, on the live album the song remains the same. Everything is judged and rightly placed, astonishing order. Moon's drumming, by contrast, is about putting things in the wrong place, the appearance of astonishing disorder. You can copy Bonham exactly, but to copy Moon would be to bottle his spilling energy, which is much harder. The third great Moon principle of packing as much as possible into a single bar of music produces the extraordinary variety of his playing. He seems to be hungrily reaching for everything at once. Take, for instance, the bass drum and the cymbal. Generally speaking, drummers strike these with respectable monotony. You hit the crash cymbal at the end of a drum roll as a flourish, but also as a kind of announcement that time out has boringly enough, ended, and that the beat must go back to work. Moon does something strange with both instruments. He tends to ride his bass drum. He keeps his foot hovering over the bass drum pedal, as a nervous driver might keep a foot on a brake, and strikes the drum often, sometimes continuously, throughout a bar. When he breaks to do a roll around the toms, he'll keep the bass drum going simultaneously, so that the effect is of two drummers playing together. Meanwhile, he delights in hitting his cymbals as often as humanly possible, and off the beat, just before or after the logical moment, rather as jazz and big band big band drummers do, the effect of all these cymbals being struck is of something is, is of someone shouting out at unexpected moments while waiting in line, a yammer of exclamation marks. Whereas his habit of entering a song by first crashing a cymbal and then ripping round the kit is like someone bursting into a quiet room and shouting, "I'm here." New technology allows lis- listeners to isolate a song's individual players. And the astonishing isolated drum tracks from Won't Get Fooled Again and Behind Blue Eyes can be found on YouTube. Um, on Won't Get Fooled Again, the drumming is staggeringly vital, with Moon at once rhythmically tight and massively spontaneous. On both that song and Behind Blue Eyes, you can hear him do something that was instinctive, probably, but which is hardly ever attempted at ordinary rock drumming. Breaking for a fill, Moon fails to stop at the obvious end of the musical phrase and continues with his rolling break over the line and into the start of the next phrase. In poetry, this failure to stop at the end of the line, this challenge to metrical closure, this desire to get more in, is called enjambment. Moon is the drummer of enjambment. For me, this playing is like an ideal sentence of prose, a sentence I've always wanted to write and never quite had the confidence to. A large Passionate onrush, formally controlled and joyously messy, propulsive but digressively self interrupted, attired but disheveled, careful and lawless, right and wrong. You can encounter such sentences in Lawrence's prose, in Bellows, sometimes in David Foster Wallace's. Such a sentence would be a breaking out, an escape, and drumming has always represented for me that dream of escape, when the body forgets itself, surrenders its awful self consciousness. I taught myself the drums, but for years I was so busy being a good boy that I lacked the courage to own any drums. One could timidly admit to playing them, only if that meant that one never actually played them. At school, I did play in a rock band, but I kept the fact fairly quiet. The kids I played rock music with did not overlap with the world of classical music. Drumming was a notional add-on, a supplement to the playing of proper instruments. A merely licensed rebellion. At school, the classical music path was the scholastic path. Choir school was like being at conservatory, daily rehearsal and performance. And then, later as a teenager, to work hard at the piano, to sing in the choir, to play the trumpet in a youth orchestra, to pass exams in music theory, to study sonata form in Beethoven or for a music scholarship, to talk to one's parents about Bach, or even daringly, the Beatles, to see the London Symphony Orchestra, or even just to fall asleep during Aida. All that was approved was part of being a good student. Nowadays, I see school kids bustling along the pavement, their large instrument cases strapped to them like diligent coffins, and I know their weight of obedience. Happy obedience, too. That cello or French horn brings lasting joy and a repertoire more demanding and subtle than rock music's. But fuck the laudable ideologies, as Roth's Mickey Sabbath puts it. Subtlety is not rebellion, and subtlety is not freedom, and sometimes it's rebellious freedom that one wants. And only rock music can deliver it. And sometimes one despises oneself in near middle age for still being such a merely good student. Georges Bataille has some haunting words about how the workplace is the scene of our domestication and repression. It's where we're forced to put away our Dionysianism. The crazy sex from the night before is as if forgotten, the drunken marital argument of the weekend is erased, the antic children have disappeared. All the writhing, passionate music of life is turned off and the excremental body is fraudulently clothed. A false bourgeois order dresses you and the sack and quick penury await you if you don't obey. But Georges Bataille might also have mentioned school, for school is work too, work before the adult workplace. And school tutors the adolescent in repression and the rectitude of the bourgeois order. At the very moment in life when temperamentally and biologically one is most Dionysiac, and most enraged by the hypocritical ordinances of the parental league. So adolescents quickly get split into two with an inner and outer self, a lawless sprite inside and a lawful ambassador outside. Rock music or your first sexual relationship or reading or writing poetry, or probably all four at once, why not, represent the possibilities for inward escape. And playing rock is different again from playing classical music or from writing poetry or painting. In all these other arts, Though there may be trance-like moments and even stages of wildness and excess, the pressure of creating lasting forms demands discipline and silence, a charged, concentrated precision. Mindful of Pascal's severe aphorism about the importance of staying quietly in a room, staying quietly in a room, one does just that. One did just that, even at the age of 16, and stares at the sheet of paper, even if the words are not coming. Writing and reading, beautiful as they are, still carry with them the faintest odour of the exam room. Rock music, though, is noise, improvisation, collaboration, theatre, exuberance, showing off, truancy, pantomime, aggression, bliss, tranced collectivity. It's not concentration so much as fission. Imagine then the allure of the Who, whose vandalising velocity was such an incitement to the adolescence demon sprite. I'm wet and I'm cold, but thank God I ain't old, sang young Roger Daltrey on Quadrophenia, in a song about a mod teenager, named Jimmy no less, who gets thrown out of his home. Here by the sea and sand, nothing ever goes as planned. I just couldn't face going home. It was such a drag on my own. They finally threw me out. My mum got drunk on stout. My dad couldn't stand on two feet as he lectured about morality. The Who were a kind of performance art band. There was plenty of calculation amid the carelessness. Pete Tanzan was a graduate of the Ealing Art School whose other musical alumni from the 1960s were Freddie Mercury and Ronnie Wood, and has sometimes claimed that the idea of smashing his guitar on stage was partly inspired by Gustav Metzger's auto-destructive art movement. That high tone is quite Tanzanian. But in one way, it's hard not to think of Keith Moon's life as a perpetual happening, a gaudy, precarious, self-destructing art installation whose gallery placard simply reads, the rock-and-roll life late 20th century in a manner that's also true of his drumming he seemed to live at once naively and self-consciously utterly spontaneous in his scandalous misbehavior and yet also aware that this is how one should live if one is a famous and rich rock musician his parody is very hard to separate from his originality his parody is his originality this is one of the most charming elements of his posture behind the drum kit He's always clowning around, standing up sometimes, at other times puffing out his cheeks like Dizzy Gillespie, grimacing and grinning like a fool in some opera boofer, twirling his sticks, doing silly phantom rolls just above the skins of the drums. A child might think that Moon was a circus performer. Actually, my child does think that... One of them does think that Keith Moon was a circus performer. His drumming like his life was a serious joke. Nowadays, Moon would probably probably be classed as having both ADHD and bipolar disorder, fortunately fortunately for the rest of us he grew up in post-war non-therapeutic Britain and medicated himself with booze illegal drumming drugs and illegal drumming born into a modest working-class household in North London in 1946 Moon had a paltry education he was restless hyperactive and often played to the gallery an art teacher described him as retarded artistically idiotic in other respects and the authorities that's how school reports used to be written And the authorities were doubtless relieved when he left school at the age of 15. You never felt one day he's going to be famous, a friend told Tony Fletcher, Moon's biographer. You felt more likely that he was going to end up in prison. He had little formal training on the drums. As Gogol's brilliant prose or Richard Burton's swaggering acting embody the temperamental exhibitionism of their creators, so Moon's playing is an extension of his theatrical hyperactivity. His mother noticed that he got bored easily and quickly lost interest in his train set or Meccano. Throughout his short life, he was seemingly addicted to practical jokes. He set off cherry bombs in hotels, dressed up as Adolf Hitler or Noel Coward, rode a wheelchair down an airport staircase, smashed up hotel rooms, drove a car into a swimming pool, and got arrested for breaching the peace. On planes, he might do his chicken soup routine, which involved carrying a can of Campbell's chicken soup on board, emptying it unseen into a sick bag and then pretending to retch violently, at which point, quote, he would raise it and pour the sick-like soup back into his mouth, offering up a hearty sigh of relief while innocently inquiring of fellow passengers what they found so disgusting. There was a relentlessness, a curious, drunken patience to, his, to this theatricalism, which often needed preparation and forethought and certainly demanded a kind of addicted commitment. Quote, Keith wore the Nazi uniform like something of a second skin, donning it intermittently for the next six or seven years, writes Tony Fletcher. Six or seven years? His alcoholism and coke-snorting were certainly addictions, but perhaps they were merely the solvents needed to maintain the larger primal addiction to joking and play-acting. Performance is a way of sublimely losing oneself, and there is a sense in which Moon, as drummer, was another role, alongside Moon as Hitler, Moon as Noel Coward, Moon as arsonist, Moon as sick-bag buffoon, and Moon as crazy rock star. Quote, I don't give a damn about a holiday in room, he grandly said after some act of vandalism. There's ten million of them exactly the same. But role suggests choice, freedom, calculation, whereas these roles don't seem to have been chosen so much as depended on. Or to put it another way, despite all the gaiety and partying, The only performance that seems to have truly liberated Moon was the one he enacted behind the drum kit. I often think of Moon and Glenn Gould together, despite their great differences. Both started performing as very young men. Moon was 17 when he began playing with The Who, Gould 22 when he made his first great recording of the Goldberg Variations. Both were idiosyncratic, revolutionary performers for whom spontaneity and eccentricity were important elements. Both, for instance, enjoyed singing and shouting while playing. Both men had exuberant, pantomimic fantasy lives. Gould wrote about Petula Clark's downtown and appeared on Canadian television and radio in the guise of invented comic personae such as Karl-Heinz Klopfeiser and Sir Nigel Twitt Thornwaite, the Dean of British Conductors. Both were gregarious and essentially solitary. Neither man practised very much, at least Gould claimed not to practise, and it's impossible to imagine Moon having the patience or sobriety to practise. And with both men, all the other performing, Gould's hand-washing and coat-wearing and melodramatic pill-popping hypochondria, hypochondria, has the slightly desperate quality of mania, except the performance behind the instrument, which has the joyous freedom of true escape and self-dissolution. Gould becomes the piano. Moon becomes the drums. For both Moon and Gould, the performer's life was very short. Gould abandoned concert performance at the age of 31, Moon was dead by the age of 32, and had not played well for years. He had perhaps eight really good drumming years between 68 and 76. Throughout this period he was ingesting ludicrous volumes of drink and drugs. There are stories of him swallowing 20 or 30 pills at once. In San Francisco in 1973 he'd taken so many depressants, perhaps to come down from a high or to deal with pre concert nerves, that after slopping his way through several songs he collapsed and had to be taken to the hospital. When his stomach was pumped it was found to contain quantities of PCP, a drug described by Tony Fletcher as used to put agitated monkeys and gorillas to sleep. What magically happened on stage while Moon was being carted away was incised years ago on my teenage cerebellum. Pete Townsend asked the crowd whether anyone could come up and play the drums. Scott Halperin, a 19-year-old and presumably soon to be the most envied teenager in America, got onto the stage and played with the Who. Everything was locked into place, Halperin later said, of the gargantuan drum kit. Any place you could hit, there would be something there. All the cymbals overlapped. Both Moon and Gould were rather delicate, even handsome young men, who coarsened with age and developed a thickness of feature, an almost simian rind. At twenty, Moon was slight and sweet, with a bowl of black hair upended on his head and dark dopey eyes and the arched eyebrows of a clown. By the end of his life, he looked ten years older than he was, puffy, heavy, his features no longer sweetly clownish, but slightly villainous. Bill Sykes, played by Moon's old drinking friend Oliver Reed, the arched eyebrows now thicker and darker, seemingly painted on as if he would become a caricature of himself. Friends were shocked by his appearance. He was slower and less inventive, less vital on the drums. The album Who Are You, his last record, attests to that decline. Perhaps no one was very surprised when he died from a massive overdose of the drug heminevrin, a sedative prescribed for alcohol withdrawal symptoms. He's gone and done it, Townsend told Roger Daltrey. Thirty-two pills were found in his stomach and the equivalent of a pint of beer in his blood. His girlfriend who found him told a coroner's court that she'd often seen him pushing pills down his throat without liquid. Almost exactly two years later, John Bonham died from asphyxiation after hours of drinking vodka. He was less than a year older than Moon. There are two famous Glenn Gould recordings of the Goldberg Variations. The one he made at the age of 22 and the one he made at the age of 51, just before he died. The opening aria of that piece, the lucid, ornate memory, Uh, lucid, ornate melody that Gould made his own sounds very different in each recording. In the young man's version, the aria is fast, sweet, running clear like water. In the middle-aged man's recording, the aria is half as fast, the notes so magnetically separated that they seem almost unrelated to one another. The first aria is cocky, exuberant, optimistic, vital, fun, sound-filled, the second aria is reflective, seasoned, wintry, grieving, silence-haunted. These two arias stand facing each other, separated by almost 30 years, as the gates of a life. I prefer the second version, but when I listen to the second, how I want to be the first. Very happy to take questions either that about that essay or or anything else. Yeah. Yeah. Hello. Um. I'd like to return you to what you're saying about the you know the ideal sentence. Um. Mm-hmm. And clearly you are a fan of prose. But I read a couple of reviews by you last year. One of Sheila Hetty, One of um, my struggle. Mm-hmm. Where you were very careful to say that the prose was problematic. Let's say. Mm-hmm. And yet those two books both appeared on your favourite book of the year list. Mm-hmm. So I wondered how important prose was to you as as something to judge in an overall novel. I think, you know, that's a question I keep on coming back to myself. Um, And maybe that, you know, maybe that struggle is never resolved um, because, okay, yeah, there is an ideal sentence, perhaps. Let's let's assume that that's even true. But I I think for the purposes of that essay, there's an ideal sentence, okay. Um, But then it's a sentence that's being put to work in a novel and 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 virginia woolf was right to say you know novelists don't write sentences just sentences they write chapters scenes and chapters and there's a rhythm to a novel which isn't just the, the rhythm of the sentence um which is why of course as readers we like all kinds of different prose it's why i think instinctively most of us think we wouldn't want to be like nabokov you know casting out Dostoevsky, Stondahl, Thomas Mann, Camus, as, as he did, because somehow they don't write well enough. You know, Nabokov was completely offended by the fact that Stondahl had dictated the Charterhouse of Palmer in 52 days and that it was essentially, you know, pretty slapdash. Just that didn't.
1: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
0: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with stamps.com use code
1: program for a special offer that's stamps.com code program
0: wasn't right but i think most of us feel we couldn't live like that and we couldn't read like that so i probably in a way that's not dissimilar to this essay i'm i, I i'm always coming and going on this question of what i want from from novelistic prose, um, um, and I, you mentioned Canalsgard. I think that's a. Uh, for those of you who don't know, this is a uh, an extraordinary. Um, uh, I was reviewing the first volume of a of a book that's actually six volumes and many thousands of pages. Um, uh, a, a Norwegian uh, memoirist, uh, novelist too, um, and and avowedly written extremely fast. Hundreds of words a day, um, and yeah, the prose is is pretty slapdash. It's it, it wouldn't be up to the you know Nabokovian or the Amisian standards. There's lots of cliches and and sloppy uh, phraseology. But um, there's something about that book uh, that just uh, I think I wrote in the review that even when I was when I was bored, I was interested, and um, that's true actually. It somehow. Just as you're nodding off it keeps you it keeps you going and 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 it has the most extraordinary things in it. He breaks for essays on all sorts of um topics you know um uh reading a adorno um getting tearful over a constable drawing um playing in a rock band it, there's just it's a it's a it's a wonderful book um and it was sort of fun for me when Writing about that book precisely to push against my own tendency to aestheticize and and want you know the best from prose. Hi. Um I was wondering if you thought we could ask the same questions of literature that we can ask of religion, and if not, how are the questions different? Hmm. Uh, I thought we were going to ask about Keith Moon. Oh, dear. All right. Well, someone will. Um, you know, throw me an easy one, like, what do you think of Ginger Baker? Um, all right. Um, I, um... Well, uh, I hope this isn't too pat, but uh, we, we can ask the same questions, but we't we shouldn't get the same answers should we um, I was all, always quite affected when I was younger by reading um, t s eliot's essays on he has an essay on Arnold very down on Arnold, and an essay on pater also down on him, and he's down on both of them because he felt that they um, that they Transferred their their religious ardor and zeal into uh, literature, and Eliot, being Eliot, felt the two should be separated. And there's one something he writes in one of those essays where he says, rather sternly, um, "Nothing should be a substitute for anything else." And I was like that. I mean, that's a good principle to work on, isn't it? That that that, that inevitably there because of the way we're brought up, and and because literature, in many ways, comes out of uh, you know biblical narrative um there's going to be some substitution and some bleeding, but I think it's worth keeping them separate um so I'm sure, as you know, I mean one of the huge historical developments in in the last hundred and fifty years or two hundred years has been um, has been the way in which scholars and, and ordinary readers have come to view the biblical stories, particularly the gospels, as if they were reading literature. Um, That's what Benjamin Jowett said famously, you know, in 1850, Um, we should read them like we read literature and and we'll see that they're stories constructed sometimes well, sometimes less well. Um, But I suppose in in a sort of old-fashioned way that probably reveals my um, uh, religious background to to even... to all that that i 've for all that i 've pushed against it um I think that it 's worth demanding of um religious texts that they that they aren 't just fiction that they do disclose they, that they disclose something um, that some creator that isn 't just human right in other words of course they 're- they 're written by human beings but but i think it 's worth keeping. Alive, the idea of revelation, and and letting religion stand or fall on that. I don't believe in revelation, but um, but it makes sense to me at least when someone when someone says he is uh, who does. Um, there's a little there's a fun thing that you know Richard Dawkins did a um, one of those documentary things that he's always doing about prosecuting religion um, uh, with. Rowan Williams, he sort of captures Rowan Williams in that some crypt, you know, and um, you know they're both playing up to type. So so Dawkins, in his sort of high-voiced Oxonian way, says, you know, do do do, do you really believe in in, in in miracles, in the Virgin Birth? Um, and Rowan Williams sort of tugs on his beard and says, um, well, um, it's it, uh, it, uh, not exactly. Um, and then sort of Dawkins comes in and says. Eh, but, but they're not metaphors. Surely they're not metaphors. I mean, I like poetry as much as anyone else does, but but they're, they're surely not just... They're not poems. And Williams, crushingly, you know, Williams says, says some sort of gobbledygook, he says something like, um, no, they're not they're not supernatural events, um, but perhaps they're moments, the virgin birth would be an example, they're moments where history opens itself up, opens a space up, where something... A historical might occur, and you can see, you know, Dawkins is just thinking you don't, you don't, you're not any different from me. You 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 won't concede it, but you, what you can't do is say, actually, there's some revelation here, and religion is different from right. It's precisely held to account on this question of metaphor, and essentially, Williams cannot say it's it's metaphor or, or it's story. There has to, and I don't blame him because he's got a lot in, invested in not saying that. But <laughs> I don't mean that cynically. I just, of course, I, I mean. But but um, but I, I think it's it is worth trying to to sharpen these these distinctions. Some so of your writing, um, you're very kind of keen in a in a sometimes slightly stern way on a kind of Chekhovian sentence mm-hmm. that doesn't stray beyond the characters. Yes. So worse. Keith Moon's drawing seems almost the opposite of that to me, like a very intrusive narrative voice. <laughs> I wonder if you saw a, a contradiction there, if you're more open to more. Sort of flamboyant than you perhaps were at one point. You mean like my narrative voice or Keith Moon's? Keith Moon's yeah. drumming, yeah, yeah, seems so yeah. like an intrusive kind of. He doesn't yeah. serve the song. He kind of yeah. stands in front and yeah. So, uh, well, and the second question uh, would be: Would you be able to demonstrate some finger drumming for us? <laughs> <laughs> now there it gets easy. Um, well, I'll try and do some some finger drumming for you, but I need surfaces. Um, well, this is a good surface. Um, I I am totally with you. I mean. Uh, yes sometimes i am a little bit stern and 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 chekhovian and, and it's true that i love i love implication and things left unexplained um that always seems to be um that always seems to me risky and daring when a writer does it um uh, and i'm i think i'm sort of i think i'm impressed by it in the way that i'm slightly impressed by bad manners you know um it's just you sort of you know there's like someone sort of doesn't Feel a need to be nice to anyone or explain himself, and you think, "Wow, how do you manage to do that?" I'm always going around, you know, cravenly thanking people and opening doors and so on. You just sail through. There's a similar thing in literature. I think I I like that. That I like a writer who doesn't. Henry Green, for instance, I love Henry. Henry Green doesn't explain and just throws you in there, and you have to work it out. Chekhov, as as you rightly said, who who was an influence on Henry Green, is like this too. but again, one comes back to just the variety of literature and how, in fiction, it's so—it's it, it, so wrong, really, to for all that one likes opining, as I do, and throwing out rules and so on. Um, it's so hard to—you wouldn't want to, really—to to commit yourself to one to one way of writing, because for every great writer who does that, and there's someone else who, you know, there's a Lawrence who comes in and bullies you, and I love Lawrence and tells you what to think, and so um, yes, perhaps Moon. Um, Moon is the is, is is such a such a an example. Um, now you mentioned finger drumming. Um, uh, well, we we need some we need some, we need some we got some sensors actually, yes. but we should, we should mic it slightly. Yeah, right. Uh, I'll do my best. These are, probably won't be able to hear very much. Um, all right. Um, You go. Uh, yeah, yeah. believe me it's a very small talent um, you too can be on YouTube uh, so uh, other other questions yeah back there um, this is maybe an easy one but in in your discussion about Lydia Davis you talked quite a lot about the influence of her own life and mm. our sense that we know her as a narrator when we're reading mm. her fiction I wondered if moving from that you'd talk a little bit about the overlap or not overlap between fiction and non-fiction, which is a fairly hot topic at the moment, and how you feel about how those two should be separated mm. or not. Yeah. Um, thank you for that question. Uh, so the, the qu- question refers to this uh, terrific American author, short story writer, um, often writes fragments of, you know, aphoristic fragments, two or three lines or half a page, um, quite enigmatic. Uh, called Lydia Davis um, some of them some of them seem to have very little to do with her and and as I say almost achieve the the otherness of a, of an aphorism um, Some of them seem to relate directly to um, say mourning a father, mourning a mother uh, visiting a father in a nursing home, and that kind of thing. Um, I tend perhaps rather more than some some reviewers do to, I've done this with Curtsia too, with Elizabeth Costello, to to sort of um, emphasize what I feel to be the personal presence of of the writer in in the work, without, I hope, sort of assuming that I know what the biography is, but but simply that you can feel some charged moment where there's some kind of connection that's a little, I think we all know it when when we feel it, when we experience it in in writing um and uh and you asked about you know differences between fiction and nonfiction. um well i mean like most readers i enjoy both genres a great deal um and and of course there is isn't there some some crucial middle place uh where sometimes it's very hard to say which is which um I don't what I don't especially like, and and I've, and I've been a bit hard on, I suppose, in in some pieces, is I don't particularly like the kind of evangelizing that's going on at the moment. I'm thinking of David Shields' memoir um, manifesto, Reality Hunger, um, for for either memoir because it's reality based, or for a kind of fiction because it's reality based. Um, that seems to me sort of mistaken and 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 in principle wrong but it's sort of theoretically wrong too. um precisely because to go back to what i said a second ago we can't presume to know uh... we we can talk about feeling a personal pressure in something but we can't presume to know uh... what the fictional and what the non-fictional elements are in bits of writing Um, and i think uh, you know demanding that 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 fiction be a you know, reality based um so for instance, for shields um his argument would be um, well, actually, it's basically just a form of laziness, which is um it's a great bore to have to read all the way through Middlemarch, um but it's really easy reading uh Nietzsche because it's aphoristic, right It's fun reading Jeff Dyer essays, but a bit of a bore to work your way through Dickens. That's essentially what it is. Um and but that's dressed up as you know Dickens and George Eliot make things up, and it's such a bore to have to go through their fictional machinery. Why don't we cut to the quick with a Sheila hetty or a Jeff Dyer or someone who's who's thrown all that crap out of the window um so you can see the problems with this argument um for one thing, you know although there is a lot of we all know there's a lot of crap and machinery in in fiction which most of us want to get rid of um, uh, um there are writers who do interesting things with the, with the crap of machinery without necessarily entirely getting rid of it. Um, there's also isn't there something isn't there something just rather splendid about the idea when we read a piece of fiction, that something has been made out of nothing that is a little different from from, however, whatever authorial and fictive games you're playing with memoir, it's still a little, it seems in principle, a little different from writing about yourself. To actually say, there was nothing, and now there's something, and it just has been invented. Um, to me, at least, there's something rather rather magical about that. Um, also, of course, there's the mystery of mit- of fictional form. So someone like David Shields has said, I think, in, in an interview, you know, I, I can't remember when I last read a book that wasn't um, in numbered paragraphs because that's how he likes to take it, you know, sort of one paragraph at bed every night like a like a cup of cocoa. Um, and, you know, having written a book, actually, How Fiction Works in numbered paragraphs, I quite understand. It's easier to write, too. Um, but But there is that strange mystery of fictional form which, again, is different from the... I think from the from the borrowed or imposed form of memoir, even again when fictional games are being played with memoir, um, there's that you know there's the circle that you choose to put round something, and then, then then that begins to generate its own formal pressure. It's why that's the the side that I wasn't. I didn't love about the Sheila Hetty book, for all that I like, The Daring, and I know she's coming to talk about this uh, soon, Um, it is a daring book, um, but it also crucially lacks form, I think, Um, and it's interesting that in an interview she says something like, you know, I can't stand, she sort of does the Shields thing, I can't stand fiction anymore, I'm completely bored with the idea of putting, putting fictive characters, and what she says is I'm completely, I can't, I'm bored with the idea of putting fake characters through their paces. Um but you know what? There's something nice about fictional form putting people through their paces, demanding something of them, putting some pressure on an invented series of adventures or challenges or or, or crises. Um and I I also resent the Puritanism of fake, right? Fake, what's fake? I mean they're no more fake than, than I am. You know, they're 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 real, they're just made up. There's no need to there's no, there's no need, it seems to me. I, I have no instinct to, to take that, um, that, that Protestantism that you get in, in Roland Barthes uh, and extend it um, in that way uh, about fiction. I wanted to ask, if, if you're defending fictional form, are you defending plot? in fiction as well. No, I didn't mean plot. And, and I have a lot of... I, I didn't specifically mean plot. I'm rather down on plot, actually. I, I, like, I like books in which nothing happens, really. Um, um, so I have an awful lot of sympathy, precisely with The Shields, Jeff Dyer, Sheila Hetty, um, Roland Bart, and it does really come all from Roland Bart, doesn't it? Um, I have a lot of sympathy with that, you know, that identifying of, of all the dead machinery. And trying as hard as you can to get rid of it and, and throw out convention. I think Jeff Dyer says in one of his essays, um, and it's very wise words, he says, you know, he says, I'm, how many times, he says, I've, I've seen friends who are, you know, vital and interesting and have interesting things to say, deaden themselves, freeze themselves by trying to write novels as they get further and further uh, iced up, you know, in this machinery of plot and epiphany and rise and fall and so on. I totally understand. I think we would all understand what, what, what he means by that. Uh, and so then, but then I think it doesn't necessarily make much point to say, well then um, I'm just done with fake characters and putting p- people, you know, fake characters through their paces. No, then let's find new forms, um, you know, break, break the forms. That seems to me the exciting thing to do. Find writers who perhaps have a, Tincture of conventionality about them, but have done interesting things with, 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 with plot or storytelling. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Okay.
1: Thank you. Um, I I began to notice um your work in the New Yorker. Um, for this reason, I I thought you were especially kind to first-time novelists, uh-huh. um, and I, I I just wondered whether you have a preference for reviewing these kinds of books or how do you go about choosing the books you review well, if you would like to say something about that. Thank
0: you for mentioning that um, you know there's a sort of official answer and unofficial answer about first novelist the official answer and it's a true one um, just, just because it's official doesn't mean it isn't true but um, um and that is uh I started writing for the New Yorker in two thousand and seven and it's a big audience, much bigger than the small magazine that I worked worked for before. And um there is some fun in introducing writers who who most of the readers won't have heard of to, to that uh audience. Sometimes that's first novel. I just wrote about a book of a first book of short stories last a couple of weeks ago. Or maybe it's a writer like Elena Ferrante that most people uh, haven't read much of um, uh, the unofficial thing about that. I feel strongly about first book, first novels is is um, one of the first reviews I ever wrote for the Guardian when I was twenty one, twenty two, or something. Um, was a very harsh review uh, of a first novel, and um, I think I was so young and. And uh, ambitious, um, eager to make a name for myself, and all that sort of stuff, um, and also eager to write fiction. Uh, see what became of that. But that—that um, that I quite literally didn't notice that it was a first novel, and I was horrible about it. And the book came out, the review came out. Both are now wisely forgotten. But a couple of weeks later, someone told me that. The review that review in the Guardian had come out on the same day that the author's book launch party had been, and that she'd been crying. Uh, and I, of course, who, who, who wants to do that? That's a horrible thing to do. So I've never been critical about. Um, I mean, I've tended, when being hard on writers, always to choose pretty big names like Updike and people they like that, or Paul Auster. You know, they can they can take it. Um, but to but. Reserve something for for younger writers, um, and how I choose uh, authors is very much the same way. I think that it, that it happens in in other places, um, you know, in newspapers, which is you get a sent. They have a, an idea of what's coming up in the next six months uh, because of the publisher's catalogues, which go six months in advance. Um, you have an idea too because you've looked at those catalogues, and together you sort of work out um, a schedule. Was it, yeah.
1: My question is, what was it like for you to go to America and make um the American crap and machinery your one of your main subjects?
0: <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh um so I went to America when I was when I was thirty. Um and um it, in some ways it was quite um it was, in many ways it was wonderful in some some ways it was a little bit um difficult in the first few years um I'd made a small reputation here in london um but but it didn't exist outside London. It was just writing for newspapers here so when I got to the states um it had to start all over again, and I also started in the States in Washington DC, a city that I never expected to be living in. But it's where I ended up because I got a job at the at the New Republic as an editor. So there I am in a I probably thought I would go to New York and, and freelance again. So there I am in a city which isn't notably literary, um and I didn't know anyone. Um so I suppose there were probably a, a couple of years of, of some some anxiety and and loneliness. But but mainly I saw it as as a as fantastic um opportunity and and i think for one very good reason um if it doesn't sound too self-interested and that's that american journalism as you as you well know um allows you to to write long form book reviews that's actually the form that is flourishing in america uh, a short book review is you know really um on the skids but uh as i suppose it is here um but whereas here you know you've got the lrb and you've got the tls and maybe a couple of other small smaller places for longer reviews in the states you have a thriving um journalistic magazine culture uh which does enable serious discussion at lengths of 3 or 4000 words of books and that always seemed a fantastic opportunity to me um so I tried to take it, uh, w- when, when it when it came my way. Uh, maybe it's time for one more question if I haven't. Uh I just wondered how um, you approach writing about music compared to writing about words and what the particular challenges of doing that uh, was. Yeah, thank you um and I, I I will take you with him a sec um, um well i haven't written a lot about music uh, as I suggested in the moon essay um, I did a lot of music as a kid singing and playing piano playing trumpet and i I listened to music, but i haven't written much about it um, always feeling that i didn't really have the expertise and maybe feeling instinctively um, that that I would Find difficult the thing that a good music critic should be able to do, which is put that impalpable thing into words I mean it's something I really admire about um, Alex Ross at the, at The New Yorker that he can do that you know almost sort of every two or three weeks um, that he can take you know a string quartet or something or a new piece and talk about it with some complexity but simply enough that he doesn't need to have musical quotation and then try and then put it into words often you know fun metaphors and things that he likenesses that he comes up with approximations for the sound that's been produced um, and uh, I think I would like that that opportunity uh, I just hasn't I've hasn't come my way or I haven't really made it Um so it was rather fun with the drumming thing to try and do that
1: Hi, this is a a question I suppose provoked by the Glenn Gould point Yeah. at the very end of the Keith Moon essay and how his interpretation and taste evolved over 20 years. Yes.
0: At the end of How Fiction Works, you've got that list of authors and titles. I wonder if that would have been
1: the same list 20 years earlier.
0: Yeah. um, Right. Well, it would have been about half the length, wouldn't it? Because those would be the books I hadn't read. Um, and and, And I think it does... Does seem, it would seem a good idea with, with a book like that. By the way, I never wanted it to be called that. I wanted it to be called the nearest thing to life, which is a quote from a George Eliot essay about fiction, about realism, where she says, you know, literature is the nearest thing to life. And I always loved that. Seemed absolutely right, you know, very close to life but not life itself. I loved that idea. Um, but uh, but the, the publisher was very keen on on how fiction works, and I suppose um you know with some good reason um it would be fun with a book like that 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 seems um in the nature of a of a manual or something um to to revisit it and update it a bit not just the list but some of the writing in a few years' time add some some newer work that's that i 've written about and 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 let it change uh change a bit um yeah, I am moved by that the to refer to the the Gould I am moved by that that Gould thing um many of you will know that he did this early Goldberg variations um when he was young, and that first aria you know <coughs> moves very sweetly and at a good unsentimental pace in the first version and then this last one that he did very close to his death um And he goes back into the studio, and it's absolutely extraordinary. You know, bum, bum, ba ba bum. And it's, It takes three minutes as opposed to one and a half or five as opposed to three, whatever. It's almost double the 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 length. Um, and as I said in the thing, you know, the the notes are extraordinarily separated. So they seem almost not to relate to each other anymore. And in between the notes, even more than is usually the case with Gould. You can hear him go, mm, you know, that sort of mm noise he makes when he's playing, mm-hmm, 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 you know. and there's something just overpoweringly moving about that, and about his expression, and then the slowness. Um, of course, I sentimentalize it a little bit in the in the essay and make it seem as if you know he's sad about being middle-aged or something. Um, maybe it's not that at all. Maybe it's just that he probably it is with Gould. He thought through. Um, he'd evolved, he changed, and he decided that was the speed. Um, but he's always very weird on tempo, you know, he does Beethoven at a very, very peculiar rate and isn't at all reliable on Beethoven. Um, uh, Moon, by the way, doesn't do the mmm thing. Um when, Moon just does a sort of primal scream when he, you can actually hear it on a couple of things. When he when he does fills he tends to go, this oh! is in you can just hear it on the edge of the microphone. It's, it's absolutely fantastic um maybe I should write an essay about about performers making noises because there's a thing i've always been i've always loved um there's a there's a uh recording of of beethoven's sonata one o nine uh and he's in that um second movement or the last movement of that um Sonata, the, the one that begins with a sort of hymn-like tune, you a know. He plays it very beautifully, but what's stunning to me is that if you listen hard, you, it's not that he's, he's not doing a gould-like humming. It's that you can hear him breathing. That's all. You can just hear as if he's wrestling with the music, as if he's wrestling the beauty out of it and the and wrestling it into peace you know it's just it's so controlled and yet you see yeah that's what it took it took some strength and you think of Richter in terms of strength to get that sweetness of tone out of the piano um... Anyway, I babbled on far too long uh... thank you very much for, for coming thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.